Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gitlow. And this is episode 10 in our series for 2017. And today's date is Friday, the 7th of April. And Leon, this week we're talking to Scott Wilson, the chief executive of the comparison engine iSelect. He's uh, talking to us about Australia's largest opinion website, uh, which provides advice on areas from insurance to electricity and gas. And a lot of other things in the future, I would think, as well. That's right. That's right. It's fascinating how that sort of business works. So it'll be great talking to him. And then we've got Sinclair Davidson. That's right. We're going to be talking to Sinclair about the tax cuts and what it means for the budget. Such as the budget might be. Well, let's listen to Scott Wilson. Scott Wilson. Tell us about iSelect and all the verticals you're in. Thanks, Leon. Yeah, really glad to be joining you with Talking Business today. Um, iSelect, and a lot of people would know us from 16 years ago, we started in health insurance, and that's probably our, our most well-known vertical. And we're, we're now 20% of all health insurance sales in Australia. Um, we've, since that time, expanded across 10 different businesses now. So we're in energy, broadband internet, car insurance, life insurance. We do home loans. Um, we do home and content. So you're actually now seeing us move in the last few months. So it, it's taken us uh, the last 15 years to get into seven verticals. And the last six months, we've now gone into mobile phones, travel insurance and credit cards. So a lot of people don't realize that the ISELECT group, they're just the verticals on the iSelect brand. But we also own infochoice.com.au, which is a, the leading financial services business and energywatch.com.au, which is a, a energy utilities business. So we've really broadened out, um, I guess, the number of products offering. We have 100, over 100 companies now that we deal with, uh, about 100, over 150 brands and 12,500 products on our panel for customers to choose from. So basically the way it works is that customers will go in and compare different insurance models, different insurance businesses Yeah, we what it offers them. Yeah, that's right. We're, we're like a, a digitally enabled broker, you might say. So it's the same stuff that um, you might sit down with a mortgage broker in a face-to-face environment. Um, but what you're doing is you're coming through to iSelect. We're undertaking a, a, an in-depth review of your personal needs, your circumstances. And then based on that, using our data and our technology to help you work through the thousands of combinations to find the individual product that's best best suited to your needs. And then we actually help the customer go the whole way and purchase that product. So we advise them on which product's right, um, features and benefits that they need and what they don't need. You know, sometimes what we find in, especially in insurance and utility products, you often, it's those products that are boring but important. You know you need it, you keep putting it off. Um, You might have said to yourself 10 times, yeah, I really should look at my electricity one day i think i might be paying too much or i'm not not on the right deal um, eventually there's some form of trigger that uh, gets you to come and talk to iSelect and then we help you work through that but it's it's really important for customers to understand the complexity and it's not just it's not just about price so there's no point you know people don't uh, want the cheapest health insurance product if you're on the operating table and you're not covered for a procedure so it's making sure when you look at insurance and utility products and, and financial services that you're understanding what your customer needs are and, and i guess breaking it down simply is iSelect takes away all the industry jargon because lots of different companies call their products lots of different things and we match that industry jargon back to your needs so it's doing that in a plain English way that we've got uh, now 550 advisors that you know the majority of our sales are actually call assisted so we walk through um, the complexity uh, in our 
through our contact centers and help you choose those products. So it's done online and at call centers? Yeah, that's right. So you start, most of our customers, so we deal with nine, we have nine million unique visitors coming across the, the three sites each year and we return about six million product comparisons. So that's almost the first step. But like we see, that's, that's part of a research journey as you're making your decision on these products. Um, you can go and purchase online and, and complete the transaction. But over 80% of our sales are actually with a specialist. So we have mortgage brokers, financial advisors, health specialists, car specialists, and they actually step through the customer's needs in a much more in-depth personalized advice uh, and help them work through what is it they need and what is it they don't need. So in a sense, you're, you're the interface between the customer and expert knowledge. That's exactly Quite right. Clearly. So do you get into the, how do you set the criteria where, where the initial interface with the guy gets online? So what we actually do, this is where iSelect has patented technology. So we're, as you're coming through and you're, we're asking you questions, what's important, we might ask you postcode, your name, where you live. Um, it's really trying to understand, because there's lots of people like you. So it's, it's your individual needs, but we're also using that big data. And what we're effectively doing is trying to narrow down you as an individual and the type of person, you as the, uh, the product set that best meets your need, and then the type of advisor that is more likely to be able to help you choose that product. So we're actually getting people that are, you'd like to talk to. It's, it's a bit of we get into rapport. Um, and then not only do you like to talk to them, but they understand your individual product circumstances and needs better than anyone else. So we do that matching in real time. So that's where iSelect's unique technology comes in. It's called our iConnect system. And it's technology that we've developed over the last 16 years, proprietary at iSelect. Um, and that's really how we help consumers. So we're a, we're a customer first business. We, we actually don't take into account uh, things like the fees we get paid or commissions. So they make no, they have no bearing on the advice we give. Uh, the consultants aren't aware of them. So they don't sit in our data, our algorithms on product recommendation. The only things that sit in our recommendations are customers' needs. So based on the, the information, what you're telling us, we then help you choose that. Now, if we get to the end of it and the product that you're on would say the insurer, the health insurer, and then on the ISEC panel, we actually tell you to stay where you are. We, we don't want a customer to move off products if it's wrong for them. And in fact, in the last 12 months, we've had over 70,000 customers we've told don't change insurer or energy company because you're on the right product. So it's giving them that peace of mind and confidence. What's the business model here? I mean, where did the fees come from? So the fee, it's a free service to consumers and the customer comes in, but we charge a fee to the provider. So if you look at, um, say, a health insurer or a bank, they would have their own staff, their own marketing costs, their own branch networks. So instead of acquiring customers through those channels, they're using a third party like ourselves as their distribution channel. So we charge the successful provider a fee at the end of that sale, but we only charge them on a successful sale. Um, and as I said, that actually doesn't drive the recommendations we give to our customers. So it's a, it's a great proposition for customers because you get free advice and help purchase the product and take away complexity. And then for our partners, we're a more cost-effective distribution channel. So it's often lo- it's often more cost-effective to acquire a customer through iSelect than have all of those fixed costs of their own distribution, marketing, branch networks, sending mobile advisors out to your house. Um, it's pretty expensive to do that. So for, it's, a, it's a bit of a win-win where a partner can get a, a cheaper acquisition and a customer gets the right product that suits their individual needs. And because it's fee per sale, it's easy to handle for the provider. Absolutely. So it's, you know, in essence, iSelect's taking all the risk of marketing on. We're taking the risk of converting that sale. And then we're, and I guess the benefit when you look from a customer's perspective is there's always a company that's got a product that suits your needs. So, you know, if you go to one provider, say you turn up to a bank, they're going to tell you their product's right. 
Uh, we'll actually look across the 26 lenders and tell you which bank's the right one based on your needs. And they all have different criteria, features and benefits. So that that's how we really matching. It's like a big marketplace. So we're trying to find millions of customers and the thousands of products and match you to the to the bank that's the right one for you. So really, this you've gone back to early history. It's, it's a market economy and people are calling their wares and the customers going down between the stalls as they did in medieval times. <laughs> that's right. Checking on the potatoes. What, what old is new? <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating. It, it is because what, what the internet's done is really shifted the power away from large companies back to the customer. So we're more informed than we've ever been. The problem is we're more informed than we've ever been. And often you get to the, poise, uh, the, the position where it's hard to make choice. So for us having that marketplace environment where we can, we can using technology these days make it um, so the customer's in charge. Um, and that way the provider's no longer saying, well, here's the terms I'm happy to do business on. It's actually the customer's terms and it's the flipping of the model. So, I mean, you've come a long way from your early days. I mean, you started in Port Melbourne, you, you were eight people. Now you have something like 750 people working for you. What are your plans? Yeah, look, we, I mean, we did start as a, an online business only. We only had a website back then with the eight original employees, two of which are still with the company. Um, but now in, in the last 12 months, what we've done is we've shifted the company strategy. So we're, our vision is to become Australia's life admin store. And life admin is all the boring but important stuff you need to do. It's that paperwork that it's a bit like the monkey on your back. You keep saying, I should do that. Or it's the reason you keep putting off decisions. So take a, a, a purchase of a new home. You want the home, you don't want to do the mortgage. You don't want to go through the 46 pages of documents that you need to sign just to apply. And what ISEC really doing is saying, how do we how do we actually help Australians with all of their life admin? What are those important moments? It might be the first time that you buy a new car or first house or, or indeed a family home. So you might have done it before, but all of a sudden it's a much bigger decision. And then what we're doing is expand, continuing to expand the verticals we're in. So we've got another 30 products that we've identified that we can enter into where we think we can add value for the customer and help them do their life admin. So it's taking away that, that boring paperwork that they don't want to do. You're in the in the open internet. People in the United States or you know Bulamakanka can access you. Do you get involved with Beyond Australia at the moment? Uh, we do. We have uh, in a couple of ways. I guess we deal with a number of companies and our, and our product suppliers, so our partners um, that are global players. Um, we obviously deal with companies like Google, but we also own um, part own 26% of a business in Southeast Asia called iMoney. Now iMoney does the same stuff as iSelect. It's the leading comparison service across Southeast Asia. Um, I'm actually on the board as chairman and, and what we're doing is helping them through their scale-up stage. So we're, we're not currently in other parts of the world. Um, we're, we are a unique model because there's lots of businesses that are aggregators and often an aggregator will generate you know, customer demand through price and then refer that customer's contact details onto the provider to call be that one or many. In our case, we're actually advising you and helping you purchase that product, so taking you the whole way through. So it's a very different model to what you see overseas. And it's why we've been very successful. Uh, we've been able to actually help Australians work through these complex products and make it easy for them to buy with confidence. And if you if you look at what ISEC does at the core, it's really give the customers confidence in stuff that you don't want to be an expert in. You know, your, your life stages change every three to five years. Um, and that's actually what drives the uptake of these products. Obviously, uh, you have a unique business business model. I mean, do you see yourself expanding into other markets? We do. We're focused, um, if you look in the short term, we're really focused on expanding in Australia. 
So there's lots of opportunity and lots of... You look at categories like superannuation or pet insurance. I mean, there's 30 million super accounts for, you know, 7, 8 million working Australians. It's because people are having multiple jobs these days and they're forgetting to roll over. It's free to consolidate, yet people don't because they find it complicated and they don't want to make the wrong choice. Yet they're often underinsured and their fees are being taken out of their super account. So, So we're looking at categories like that to say, how can we expand in Australia? And if we've got to a point where we've expanded in Australia and we're saying, look, we're doing a really good job here, no doubt we'll look internationally and that's why we've got the the business in Southeast Asia and iMoney that we've started to take a, an initial holding in. Scott Wilson, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. Thanks, Scott. It's a fascinating business, the, the, on, the power of online with this sort of the opinions and it's where everybody now goes for whatever they want. It's a very clever idea, a very clever idea, and uh, it just goes to show the importance of um, these sorts of community-type businesses. And now Sinclair Davidson. Sinclair Davidson, the government has passed it tax cuts for companies up to, with turnovers of up to $50 billion. What will this do for the budget uh, when we're facing a budget deficit and the debt keeps blowing out? Actually, surprisingly, it's not going to have a particularly large effect at all. The tax cuts for medium and small size businesses um, are, are obviously quite nice and welcome. I'm sure they're very happy about it. And of course, the government's quite ecstatic. It managed to pass something to the parliament. But in terms of a revenue perspective, it's actually going to have a very small effect. The Australian uh, company tax revenue is actually very highly skewed towards large businesses. So the top 100 big companies normally pay, I'd say about 60% or so of all the net corporate income tax revenue that the government receives. And those businesses, of course, are not receiving a a tax cut. So in a revenue sense, it's actually going to have a a very small impact on on the budget bottom line. If the government actually wants to get its budget back into surplus, which it keeps talking about, it will actually have to cut spending as opposed to hoping to grow the economy out of trouble. The Treasurer, Scott Morrison, was on uh, the the Insiders program on the ABC on the week. He was saying that this was just stage one and uh, they were looking at bringing in the entire package as soon as they get the numbers in the Senate. I mean, what's your view about that? In one sense, I think that's pretty good policy. Um, For a long, long time, Australia actually had a flat company income tax rate. So whatever the rate was, it's gone down from about, I think, 47% about 20, 30 years ago down to the current 30% now. Having a flat company tax rate is actually a good idea. Having multiple company tax rates is not really a good idea because you start seeing all sorts of distortions coming in as businesses prevent from growing or subdivide themselves to get under the limit. So having a a, a two-rate tax a company tax system is not a good idea and I think standardising everybody at the same rate is a good idea so the, the idea of a flat company tax rate I would certainly approve of it would start cost, costing the government money if they were to cut the tax rates for big businesses. Now they are talking about this will impre- increase productivity and growth and investment and what have you and of course that is true. The question is will all these other things happen fast enough to offset what would actually be a decline in revenue towards the government and that I'm not sure about that that's an empirical question. So it does seem to me that the government are prepared to sacrifice some revenue for some greater economic growth. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it does put pressure back onto the government about what it's going to do about debt and deficit, which themselves are also a drag on the economy. So high company tax rates are a drag on the economy. Debt and deficit are also a drag on the economy. And it looks to me the government are choosing to do something about high company tax rates first. But uh, the issue of the deficit and the growing debt, which which uh, from my reading of it on Friday was something like $484.6 
billion. Yes, it's uh, it's doubled since the current government came to office. That's right. Yes, uh, this measure won't do anything to address that deficit. No, I'd be very very surprised if if it did. I mean, the government are talking about half a percentage of growth over twenty years, kind of thing for cutting small business tax rates. Um, this more or less is just going to transform transfer more money to the owners of these businesses and also encourage them to invest a bit more and uh, maybe employ a few more people. The fact of the matter is they are they are in the grand scheme of things small businesses and from the perspective of the budget they are very small businesses. It's actually the top 100 companies that we should be thinking about in terms of impacting uh, company tax revenue. The Treasurer has flagged that this uh, budget will address uh, equity issues in terms of housing affordability. What do you see happening there? I imagine there's going to be more of the same uh, um, expanding things such as uh, um, first homeowners, buyers, macro prudential policies, this sort of stuff, which in the grand scheme of things could probably distort the market even more. Uh, the real people who should be doing things about housing affordability are actually the state governments. They are the people who, who probably have more control over this than the federal government. Um, and part of the problem, of course, is also that we've, got, we've probably got very hot markets in Melbourne and Sydney but not in the rest of the country. And the federal government can't do anything just to Melbourne and Sydney, whereas the state, Victorian state government and the New South Wales state governments can introduce policies that only impact upon Melbourne and Sydney. So um, I suspect we're looking at more macroprudential kind of policies which distort the markets in all sorts of ways. Um, we, we're going to look at giving money to first homeowners and this sort of stuff, which of course just gets capitalised into the value of the existing housing stock. So I'm, I'm, I'm not optimistic that the federal government can do very much about housing high housing prices. Um, but of course, they, they, they have to be seen to be trying. And uh, I wish that from time to time, the feds would come out and say, look, there's nothing we can really add value here. And so we're not going to do anything. Go and harass your state government. And what the state government should be doing would be to be uh, releasing more land. Releasing more land. And also the other thing I would look at is the development tax that, that they apply. A few years ago, this used to be after the fact, and now it's before the fact. So the developers have got to pay the cost, the, the infrastructure costs of developing new suburbs in advance, whereas in the bad old days, they used to pay it in arrears. So I'd be looking at changing things like that, more land. Um, I would be doing away with first homeowner grants. I would also be looking at stamp duty. Um, stamp duty very often is 5 6% of the value of a house and everybody's carrying on that young people can't afford 10% for a deposit, they've actually got to save up 16% uh, to pay for the stamp duty as well. So I'd be looking at stamp duty, I'd be looking at land release, I'd be looking at development charges, um, making more land available, those sorts of things would, would probably do more for housing affordability than anything the federal government can do. Because of course the housing market is so patchy and localised. Um, location, location, location is what's important. And of course, the federal government can only legislate for the whole of Australia. Um, so anything that's location specific must actually be government specific as well. In terms of uh, cuts to spending, I mean, what do you see happening in the budget? I mean, will there be any massive cuts and uh, where would they target? I would, I'd be very surprised if there were any massive cuts to the budget because simply the government just doesn't have the numbers in the Senate and they've never made an argument for massive cuts. So to suddenly turn up on budget night is, is not going to be working. I would start off by looking at things such as escalations. Um, I would start looking at things such as can we really afford to roll out the NDIS uh, as planned? Can we really afford to roll out the NBN as planned? So all new spending that the previous government brought in, I would have frozen that um, and said to everyone, 
everybody before old spending is under control, no new spending, um, which of course the, the, the government didn't do. And so they find themselves in this position where they are locked into massive increases of spending over time that given the the state of the economy and the, 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 the state of our tax system, which works very well at raising revenue, our tax system, um, we simply just cannot afford at the moment. Uh, targeting things like MBN and uh, NDIS are politically uh, very contentious. Very, very difficult. Um, but unfortunately, as things stand at the minute, we just can't afford them. So the government will have to make some hard decisions. Yes. And I have to say for the last 10 years, we haven't had any government able to make hard decisions. Uh, we've had government telling us they can make hard decisions. But of course, we've seen spending blow out. We've seen debt blow out. Um, so we, 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 we have a, a combination of people in Canberra who, who simply cannot make an argument for balanced budgets and certainly can't deliver balanced budgets. So certainly on a, from a budgetary perspective, we're in a bit of trouble. There has been some speculation of late that uh, Malcolm Turnbull would take a more active role in selling the budget, and uh, which would put uh, Scott Morrison on the side. You would think so. It's, 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 it's quite astonishing. Um, if, if we have a look at successful governments over Australia, we've had a strong prime minister and we've had a strong treasurer. Um, if we look in the situation now where the Prime Minister's got to be doing his job and carrying the Treasurer, that does suggest that uh, Mr Morrison's not up to it. Um, his predecessor, Mr Hockey, wasn't up to it. Um, certainly, I, I never thought uh, Wayne Swan was up to it, but uh, nobody ever said Wayne Swan would be carried by the Prime Minister. So that does strike me as a rather unusual sort of situation. An, an unusual situation. And, uh, of course, uh, so it's a very far cry from the days of uh, Costello and Howard and Keating and Hawke. Absolutely. Um, and, and in some respects, I'm coming to around the view that we were spoiled. We were actually spoiled by having 25 odd years of good government. And we've actually had the last 10 years or so of very lackluster government. And uh, um, maybe these people just couldn't develop in the shadow of, of Hawke and Keating and Howard and Costello. Or, but I'm not quite sure what the situation is. But certainly people who are able to go out there and sell an economic narrative is, is, is lacking. Given that uh, we're unlikely to uh, reach surplus in the 2021 period, yeah, uh, what, will th what will this do for our credit rating? I, I'm actually surprised that we haven't lost our, our AAA credit rating already. I, I would have taken away from Australia a while back, and I suspect over time this will in fact happen. Uh, it is unsustainable that we have a AAA rating, um, certainly because... Uh, there, there, there is no plausible path back to, 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 to surplus as far as I can see. The loss of our rating is on the cards. I would have thought so. And on the other hand, this is not necessarily a bad thing. This is actually a warning sign um, because uh, credit ratings are actually lagging indicators. They're, they're not actually forward-looking indicators. So this is actually saying to us, uh, guys, come on. Sinclair Davidson, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. What do you think? Well, it'll be fascinating to watch what happens with the budget, although, you know, the um, the government's revenues might be looking up with the iron ore price. Yeah, why not? Let's hope. There's nothing better than hope. That's right. That's right. So uh, let's, let's just see how it pans out. And now the news, Leon. Well, Gary, the European Parliament has set out a tough negotiating stance with Britain for its divorce proceedings with the European Union. EU legislators who have veto power at the end of the negotiations voted 516 to 130 for the re resolution with 50 abstentions demanding phased negotiations against the wishes of London and requiring Britain to pay billions in commitments that the EU think it's owed. British Prime Minister Theresa May last week talked about parallel negotiations on exit and a future relationship. Uh, the resolution said there should be no bi bilateral deals with Britain
Britain until an exit agreement is final. It also says Britain should pay its outstanding bills, which go as high as 60 billion euros. That's about 84 billion Aussie. That's kind of, I think this is an opening ambit claim. One of the small points about all this is that if they're too tough on Britain with 80 billion euros, who's going to lose? The French farmers supplying food to Britain and the German car makers. It's, look, it's going to be very, very, very complicated. And, and look, tensions are rising very high. I mean, over the weekend, we had Michael Howard, his former British leader, uh, talking about the war with Spain over Gibraltar. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and the Spanish were going to be very, very nasty about all that. Then, uh, then again, as one of the negotiators said, told the European Parliament, the relationship between uh, the cross-channel relations between uh, Britain and Europe were never a matter of passion. It was more a matter of convenience. That's right. And now they're at the convenience. Now, the other big news, of course, is that Australia's property market is in overdrive and regulators are hining in on it. House prices across major capital cities registered the highest annual rate of growth since 2010 in seven years, according to the CoreLogic Capital City Hedonic Index. The index shows house prices in four of Australia's capital cities, Sydney, Melbourne, Hobart and Canberra, are now showing an annual growth rate in dwelling values higher than 10%. According to the index, house prices in Sydney rose 18.9%, 15.9% in Melbourne, 12.8% in Canberra and 10.2% in Hobart. On the other hand, prices in Hope Perth slipped 4.7% over the year and in Darwin they contracted 4.4%. Now, CoreLogic Head of Research Tim Lawless said the figures highlighted the continuing resurgence in the pace of capital gains for real estate around the country. And at the same time, he foreshadowed a slowdown in growth because macroprudential tightening, which has seen the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority imposing new limits on interest-only mortgage lending in an attempt to reduce risks in Sydney and Melbourne overheating housing markets. In fact, the banks are pretty crabby that uh, APRA is going to demand that they increase their uh, capital uh, holdings. Well, they've also got the corporate regulator ASIC has joined APRA in signalling and crackdown on interest-only home loans. The watchdog says it will only be using it will be using special surveillance to watch the way in which banks and other lenders offer interest-only home loans and how they're advertised. Yeah, well, interest-only is probably the the only way some people can afford to take a mortgage. Now, all of this, of course, coincides with data from the Australian Bureau of Statistics showing building approvals rising 8.3% in February, beating market expectations of 1.5% fall. And the Reserve Bank of Australia has decided to keep interest rates on hold at the record low of 1.5% for the eighth month in a row. Now, that decision was widely expected by markets and economists but the statement from the RBA Governor Philip Lowe makes it clear that the big challenge for the RBA is dealing with surging house prices. And it was a point he alluded later at a dinner in Melbourne where he got stuck into the banks for lax lending practices. And he also criticised governments for not investing in transport infrastructure to encourage residential development, allowing cities like Sydney and Melbourne to manage their increasing populations while keeping a lid on house prices. And in his statement following the RBA board meeting, Dr Lowe made it clear the RBA was concerned about the risks from rising household debt coming at a time when there was little rental growth. It's all looking rather nasty at the moment. And meanwhile, the Treasurer Scott Morrison has indicated the government's unlikely to change capital gains tax concession to fight the housing affordability crisis. Now, the government has ruled out any changes to negative gearing when it releases its budget next month, but the coalition is actually split on curbing the 50% capital gains tax deduction for investors, and Labor wants to see it cut to 25%. So let's just watch that space. Now, 
Australian consumer confidence has plunged to a near two-year low, dragged down by underemployment, low wages growth. The ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index saw consumer sentiments falling 2.4% to 111.1%. That's its lowest level in nearly two years since October 2015. Now, the sharpest decline was in expectations for economic conditions over the next year. That fell by 5 0.4% to its lowest level this year. Households' views towards their current finances fell by 2.8%, and the Future Finances Index didn't do much better. That fell by 2.1%. And the big black cloud over it all is everybody's perception that there's something wrong with the housing market. Now, on the other hand, Australian services industries have grown, rising by 2.7 points in March, are moving back into modest expansion at 51.7 points, according to the latest Australian Industry Group Australian Performance Services Index. Any figure above 50 points to expansion and the growth was powered by property and business services at 58 finance and insurance 55.5 and wholesale trade at 54.3 now the big debate has been about tax cuts and uh, the business council of australia believes tax cuts for firms with a turnover up to 50 million is just the first step to broad towards broader cuts for all businesses now business council of australia chief executive jennifer westercott told sky news on sunday she was pretty confident an across the board tax cut will be next after the senate passed the tax cut legislation later on on Friday, and she said a two-tier tax system would see businesses approaching the 50 million threshold and would start carving up bits of their company rather than growing. And the Treasurer, Scott Morrison, told the ABC's Insider program that a broader tax cut was still on the table and that delivering a tax cut rate, tax rate of 27.5% for businesses up to 50 million was just stage one of the plan. He said the government was still planning to deliver an eventual tax rate of 25% in a decade's time for all businesses. And he said the next phase would be take it to the Senate when the government believes it has the numbers to pass it. Yeah, and as Sinclair Davidson said to us uh, earlier, the uh, having a two-tier company tax rate um, or arbitrary thresholds isn't a good idea. Say you've got a company with a $51 million turnover, what happens there? They break the company into two. Now, Australian manufacturing has expanded strongly again in March. The latest Australian Industry Group Performance of Management Manufacturing Index came in at 57.5, down a marginal 1.8 points. Now, any reading in the PMI above 50 shows the sector's expanded. Now, this was a sixth consecutive month of expansion for the PMI. The Australian Industry Group said all seven activity sub-index expanded in March. New orders, 62.6 points. Sales, 57.7 points strengthened. And production expanded while slowing from more robust growth last month of 57.6 points, as did employment at 54.1 points. Deliveries at 52.9 points. And exports, 51.1 points, eased to more modest growth. While inventories were up in March to 55.5 points. Now, manufacturers are saying, the demand is on the up, with positive factors including higher prices for coal and other commodities, large infrastructure projects, the MBN rollout, stronger defence spending and stronger activity in the agricultural sector. On the downside, energy prices, particularly electricity, are continuing to play havoc. Yeah, and I think with manufacturing generally, uh, companies are beginning to see the reality of it and are starting to look for a market that they can manage. There's no no point in, com- in competing with China. You've got to find smaller companies that want higher quality. That's right. Now, retail turnover has gone into reverse. It's retreated zero. according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics. Uh, This was well short of market expectations, which was looking at a 0.3% rise. The figures were particularly weak in clothing and footwear and furniture sales. Clothing retailing fell 2.9% and footwear and other personal accessory retailing fell 1.9% in seasonally adjusted terms. Furniture, floor coverings, houseware and textile goods retailing fell 0.3%. Food retailing rose 0.3%. Department stores rose 0.8%. Now, the figures coincide 
decade, with the collapse of retailers like Marks, David Lawrence, Herringbone, Rhodes and Beckett's, and British lingerie change agent provocateur has announced it is shutting down its stores in Australia. And all these figures suggest that retail will continue to struggle because of falling consumer confidence and cutthroat competition in the sector. And never forget Amazon's on its way into Australia. That's going to have a huge effect. It will be enormous. Now, Spotless has indicated it's underwhelmed by Downer's $1.27 billion takeover bid for the catering cleaning services company. And in a letter to shareholders, Spotless advised them to take no action. It said there's no need to rush, make a fully informed decision. Wait until you receive the target statement from your directors later this month before you make a decision. And Spotless also indicated it had received interest from other potential suitors. Nothing like a clean-up. The big news story for the week, of course, was Cyclone Debbie. And extensive damage to rail lines in Cyclone hit North northeast Queensland is set to disrupt coal exports. While resources companies are saying their mines have escaped the serious damage they had when Cyclone Yassi hit in 2011, they'll struggle to get their coal to the ports and onto ships for more than a month. Now, this is globally significant because Queensland is the world's largest coking coal regions. It accounts for more than 50% of global seaborne coking coal supplies. Now, the impact is going to hit prices. It could see major producers declaring force majeure. And in a statement to the market, Horizon said its Newlands rail lines connecting to the Abbott Point coal terminal would reopen in two to three weeks, the Mora line connecting to the port of Gladstone in two weeks, and the company was considering alternative routes for coal transporters on the worst affected Gunyella line. And the Gunyella route is critical because it transports more than half the state's coal, and which is mostly coking coal used for steelmaking. That's right. The Chinese will be looking for it, won't they? Now, insurance giant IAG has been forced to lower its insurance margin after Cyclone Debbie blew out its natural parents' claims cost assumptions. IAG had initially set its natural parents' claim targets at $680 million. But the cyclone, which has devastated northeast Queensland and brought flooding to the south of state and northern New South Wales, as well as heavy rain in New Zealand, has increased this to $850 million. And the higher than expected claims costs has seen IAG cutting its insurance margin from 125 to 14.5 to 10.5 to 12.5%. And IAG said it will incur a natural peril claims cost of approximately $140 million from Cyclone Debbie. I'm surprised it's as low as that. It's been extraordinary. They've had 4,300 claims so far. And uh, that's it for this week. And uh, next week we're talking to Meta Royale from your law firm in Williamstown. And that's really interesting. This is a whole breakthrough for the legal business. It is. In the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBZ or on Facebook. Take care and we'll talk to you next week.